Chapter 2 of Hereditary Genius by Francis Galton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 2 Classification of Men According to Their Reputation. The arguments by which I endeavour to prove that genius is hereditary consist in showing how large is the number of instances in which men who are more or less illustrious have eminent kinsfolk. It is necessary to have clear ideas on the two following matters before my arguments can be rightly appreciated. The first is the degree of selection implied by the words eminent and illustrious. Does eminent mean the foremost in a hundred, in a thousand, or in what other number of men? The second is the degree to which reputation may be accepted as a test of ability. It is essential that I, who write, should have a minimum qualification distinctly before my eyes whenever I employ the phrase eminent and the like and that the reader should understand as clearly as myself the value I attach to those qualifications. An explanation of these words will be the subject of the present chapter. A subsequent chapter will be given to the discussion of how far eminence may be accepted as criterion of natural gifts. It is almost needless for me to insist that the subjects of these two chapters are entirely distinct. I look upon social and professional life as a continuous examination all are candidates for the good opinions of others and for success in their several professions, and they achieve success in proportion as the general estimate is large of their aggregate merits. In ordinary scholastic examinations, marks are allotted in stated proportions to various specific subjects, as many for Latin, so many for Greek, so many for English history, and the rest. The world, in the same way, but almost unconsciously, allots marks to men. It gives them for originality of conception, for enterprise, for activity and energy, for administrative skill, for various requirements, for power of literary expression, for oratory, and much besides of general value, as well as for more specifically professional merits. It is not a lot of these marks according to a proportion that can easily be stated in words, but there is a rough common sense that governs its practice with a fair approximation to constancy. Those who have gained most of these tacit marks are ranked by the common judgment of the leaders of opinion as the foremost men of their day. The metaphor of an examination may be stretched much further, as there are alternative groups in any one of which a candidate may obtain honours, so it is with reputations. They may be made in law, literature, science, art, and in a host of other pursuits. Again, as the mere attainment of a general fair level will obtain no honours in an examination, no more will it do so in the struggle for eminence. A man must show conspicuous power in at least one subject in order to achieve a high reputation. Let us see how the world classifies people, after examining each of them, in her patient, persistent manner, during the years of their manhood. How many men of eminence are there, and what proportion do they bear to the whole community? I will begin by analysing a very painstaking biographical handbook, lately published by Routledge & Co., called Men of the Time. Its intention, which is fairly honestly carried out, is to include none but those whom the world honours for their ability. The catalogue of names is 2,500, and a full half of it consists of American and continental celebrities. It is well I should give, in a footnote, an analysis of its contents in order to show the exhaustive character of its range. The numbers I prefix to each class are not strictly accurate, for I measured them off rather than counted them, but they are quite close enough. The same name often appears under more than one head. On looking over the book, I am surprised to find how large a proportion of the men of the time are past middle age. 
It appears that in the cases of high, but by no means in that of the highest, merit, a man must outlive the age of fifty to be sure of being widely appreciated. It takes time for an able man, born in the humbler ranks of life, to emerge from them and to take his natural position. It would not, therefore, be just to compare the number of English men in the book with that of the whole adult male population of the British Isles, but it is necessary to confine our examination to those of the celebrities who are past fifty years of age, and to compare their number with that of the whole male population who are also above fifty years. I estimate from examining a large part of the book that there are about 850 of these men, and that 500 of them are decidedly well known to persons familiar with literary and scientific society. Now there are about two millions of adult males in the British Isles above 50 years of age. Consequently, the total number of the men of the time are about 425 to a million, and the more select part of them as 250 to a million. The qualifications for belonging to what I call the more select part are, in my mind, that a man should have distinguished himself pretty frequently either by purely original work or as a leader of opinion. I wholly exclude notoriety obtained by a single act. This is a fairly well-defined line, because there is not room for many men to be eminent. Each interest or idea has its mouthpiece, and a man who has attained and can maintain his position as the representative of a party or an idea naturally becomes much more conspicuous than his coadjutors, who are nearly equal but inferior in ability. This is eminently the case in positions where eminence may be won by official acts. The balance may be turned by a grain that decides whether A, B or C shall be promoted to a vacant post. The man who obtains it has opportunities of distinction denied to the others. I do not, however, take much note of official rank. People who have left very great names behind them have mostly done so through non-professional labourers. I certainly should not include mere officials except at the highest ranks and in open professions among my select list of eminent men. Another estimate of the proportion of eminent men to the whole population was made on a different basis and gave much the same result. I took the obituary of the year 1868, published in the Times on January 1st, 1869, and found in it about 50 names of men of the more select class. This was in one sense a broader and in another a more rigorous selection than that which I have just described. It was broader because I included the names of many whose abilities were high, but who died too young to have earned the wide reputation they deserved. And it was more rigorous because I excluded old men who have earned distinction in years gone by, but had not shown themselves capable in later times to come again to the front. On the first ground, it was necessary to lower the limit of the age of the population with whom they should be compared. Forty-five years of age seemed to be a fair limit, including, as it was supposed to do, a year or two of broken health preceding decease. Now, 210,000 males die annually in the British Isles above the age of 45. Therefore, the ratio of the more select proportion of the men of the time on these data is as 50 to 210,000, or as 238 to a million. Thirdly, I consulted obituaries of many years back when the population of these islands was much smaller, and they appeared to me to lead to similar conclusions, viz. that 250 to a million is an ample estimate. There would be no difficulty in making a further selection out of these, to any degree of rigour. We could select the 200, the 100, or the 50 best out of the 250 without much uncertainty, but I do not see my way to work downwards. If I were asked to choose the thousand per million best men, I should feel we have descended to a level where there existed no sure data for guidance, where accident and opportunity had undue influence and where it was impossible to distinguish general eminence from local reputation or from mere notoriety.
The considerations of sense in which I propose to employ the word eminent. When I speak of an eminent man, I mean one who has achieved a position that is attained by only 250 persons in each million of men, or by one person in each 4,000. 4,000 is a very large number, difficult for persons to realise who are not accustomed to deal with great assemblages. On the most brilliant of starlit nights, there are never so many as 4,000 stars visible to the naked eye at the same time. Yet we feel it to be an extraordinary distinction to a star to be accounted as the brightest in the sky. This, be it remembered, is my narrowest area of selection. I propose to introduce to name whatever into my list of kinsmen, unless it be marked off from the rest by brackets, that is less distinguished. The mass of those with whom I deal are far more rigidly selected. Many are as one in a million, and not a few as one of many millions. I use the term illustrious when speaking of these. They are men whom the whole intelligent part of the nation mourns when they die, who have or deserve to have a public funeral, and who rank in future ages as historical characters. Permit me to add a word upon the meaning of a million, being a number so enormous as to be difficult to conceive. It is well to have a standard by which to realise it. Mine will be understood by many Londoners. It is as follows. One summer day I passed the afternoon in Bushy Park to see the magnificent spectacle of its avenue of horse-chestnut trees, a mile long in full flower. As the hour was past it, it occurred to me to try to count the number of spikes of flowers facing the drive on one side of the long avenue. I mean all the spikes that were visible in full sunshine on one side of the road. Accordingly, I fixed upon a tree of average bulk and flower, and drew imaginary lines, first halving the tree, then quartering, and so on, until I arrived at a subdivision that was not too large to allow of my counting the spikes of flowers it included. I did this with three different trees, and arrived at pretty much the same result. As well as I could recollect, the three estimates were as 9, 10, and 11. Then I counted the trees in the avenue, and multiplying all together, I found the spikes to be just about 100,000 in number. Ever since then, whenever a million is mentioned, I recall the long perspective of the avenue of Bushy Park, with its stately chestnuts clothed from top to bottom with spikes of flowers, bright in the sunshine, and I imagined a similarly continuous floral band of ten miles in length. In illustration of the value of the extreme rigour implied by a selection of one in a million, I will take the following instance. The Oxford and Cambridge boat race exists almost a national enthusiasm and the men who represent their universities as competing crews have good reason to be proud of being the selected champions of such large bodies. The crew of each boat consists of eight men, selected out of about 800 students, namely, the available undergraduates of about two successive years. In other words, the selection that is popularly felt to be so strict is only as one in a hundred. Now, I suppose there had been so vast a number of universities that it would have been possible to bring together 800 men, each of whom had pulled in a university crew, and from this body the eight best were selected to form a special crew of comparatively rare merit. The selection of each of these would be as one in ten thousand ordinary men. Let this process be repeated and then, and not till then, do you arrive at a superlative crew representing selections of one in a million. This is a perfectly fair deduction, because the use of the universities are a haphazard collection of men, so far as regards their thews and sinews. No one is sent to a university on account of his powerful muscle, or to put the same facts into another form, it would require a period of about no less than 200 years before either university could furnish eight men, each of whom would have sufficient boating eminence to rank as one of the medium crew. 20,000 years must elapse before eight men could be furnished. 
each of whom would have the rank of the superlative crew. It is, however, quite another matter with respect to brain power, for, as I shall have occasion to show, the universities attract to themselves a large proportion of the eminent scholastic talent of all England. There are nearly a quarter of million males in Great Britain who arrive each year at the proper age for going to the university. Therefore, if Cambridge, for example, conceived only one in every five of the ablest scholastic intellects, she would be able, in every period of ten years, to boast of the fresh arrival of an undergraduate, the rank of whose scholastic eminence was that of one in a million. End of section two.